If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the bun with crunch. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Ever since the shadow of Count Orlok crept up the staircase in 1922's Nosferatu and Fay Ray emitted her iconic scream in 1933's King Kong, horror films have captivated and scandalised audiences in equal measure. Since it's Halloween, Matt Elton caught up with writer and academic Roger Luckhurst to find out more about how scary films reflect changing social anxieties and the 10 movies he thinks are most representative of their time. So, Roger, we're here today to talk about the history of horror films and I suppose what horror films tell us about history, so the two things working in opposite directions. Before we start, what things should we know about before horror emerged as a genre? What what kind of currents were swirling before it started to form as a concrete thing? Yeah, well, famously, horror film is kind of invented by the censors in 1932. So they needed a category for this new kind of rather more explicit or difficult concerning content. So in 1932, they came up with the category H for horrific, and that shifted what had been previously called kind of mystery or, or kind of weird films sometimes. But of course, the Gothic as a tradition starts in the mid 18th century. So we've got almost like 200 years before of books that were very focused in on extreme emotions and the supernatural and the evocation of terror. And they had lots and lots of social anxiety attached to them as well. So it was felt that in the 1790s, during the political revolution in France, that people reading these extreme fictions in England, and particularly women reading these, because mostly women wrote them and mostly women read them, it was felt that this could cause all kinds of danger. So I think when we have moral panics about horror films, they're actually really old. You know, they're like they run a script that's over 200 years old. So I think that's worth thinking about because we have lots of panics. Uh, sure, we'll talk about some of those. But it's it's a really old idea that this stuff does things to you it shouldn't do. 
and that it reflects underlying social tensions, which I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to a few times throughout this. Was there a moment after the development of cinema that horror films started to emerge as their own subset of film? Yeah, so I think we tend to think of cinema as we know it, moving uh, pictures emerging in the 1890s with the famous Lumiere kind of uh, exhibit in the 1895. I think people have dated the first kind of ghost trick film to around about 1900. And then we have concurrently really with the rise of cinema quite a lot of adaptations of classic kind of horror films because it's it's hugely sensational and melodramatic and produces strong emotions so it was always very powerful for lots of industries of film not just america across the world actually and i'm really struck by this big shift in uh, cinema history from silent films to sound which happened around 1929 1930 ish that i'm very persuaded by this argument that it's that are actually really important for sound because you you start to get this kind of really strong, exaggerated kind of scream. So someone like Faye Ray, who famously gets grabbed by King Kong, was known as one of these, you know, key scream queen figures. And it's sound. It's all about sound. So the very first horror films that were really majorly successful, 1931, Dracula, 1932, Frankenstein, those films, uh, sound films, are really using kind of sound in a very inventive kind of way. And it becomes integral to cinema history. So although we think of it as kind of classic B-movie genre that's not respectable at all, it's right there from the beginning of cinema. Some people might think of the 1922 film Nosferatu as being one of the early horror films. But what we're saying here, it sounds like, is it wasn't until you could get the audio of someone being terrified that really horror started to be codified as its own distinct genre. Is that right? Well, I think, I mean, Nosferatu and a German expressionist film in general, with all of those weird, scary uh, sets and shadows and very melodramatic stories, which were often taken from classic Gothic or shock literature, as it was called in Germany, that kind of stuff is, is obviously very important. And actually, visually, of course, horror is very striking. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily all in 1931, 1932, but that kind of it all comes together in a recognisable package for us, I think, around about 1932. One of the films that was released around 1932 was Frankenstein, which is one of the films I think you wanted to talk about. Yeah, that's right. So so Frankenstein, which was this film by James Whale, who was a quite legendary gay figure in Hollywood. And you can do, people have done lots of really interesting readings about how his dissident sexual identity kind of goes into the film as well. But it's something that is uh, introduces or makes famous Boris Karloff as the as the monster figure. And it kind of sets in place um, some very striking tropes, I guess, of the horror film, not least the kind of final scene of the baying peasants kind of trying to uh, kill off the monster. But it's got a wonderful sense of pathos about the monster, which is very faithful, actually, to how Mary Shelley conceived of, of the monster in the in the novel from 1818. So it's a really powerful vision of a, a gothic novel rendered on film. And it's it's also just shows you, actually, the, the transition from Germany and German exiles coming over to Hollywood in the early 30s because of persecution 
And they're all coming together to kind of produce this kind of American film, but it's also a hybrid, a weird sort of hybrid of European folklore, folktales, gothic novels with this brand new technology. So it's a very potent start, I think, to the genre. They were using this new technology to to reflect some of the real life fears and experiences they had had. Yes, that's right, I think. So many gothic novels are about persecution, but actually Frankenstein's monster suffers this terrible persecution and kind of turns on its creator and persecutes him in turn. So it's this this sense of, of a dreadful kind of doom that is pursuing you to the ends of the earth. And if you're putting that in the context of 1930s and the rise of fascism in Europe, lots of exiles and artists, particularly arriving in America, there's a real sense of this evocation of, of that kind of political background, I think, in quite a lot of these films in the 1930s. We head then into the 1940s, and there's a cycle of films by one director that I think you wanted to focus on in this period. Yeah, that's right. So so we tend to think of that uh, Frankenstein or, or Dracula were Universal Studios. So this is the era of the great large studio productions. So Universal Horror dominated in the 1930s and competing studios tried to set up kind of rival little groups of this. And over at RKO, they invited this Russian emigre called Val Newton for a horror unit. It was called that, a horror unit in 1942. And because he was a novelist and an intellectual, a Russian emigre, he was a very literary, literate kind of figure. And Val Newton got lots and lots of directors to produce really extraordinary films, actually, very low budget. But something like Cat People from 1942 is a really kind of key one. Lots of evocative shadows, a really kind of very explicit Freudian narrative about sexual anxiety and sexual repression, but also about, you know, a, a, just a mourning of being in exile from from Europe. Very, very powerful film. And then the same director, Jacques Tourneur, who was working with Val Luton at this point, also did this amazing film called I Walked With a Zombie, which sounds incredibly melodramatic and silly, but actually it's set in the Caribbean. It's an amazing evocation, poetic evocation of this last days of the colonial kind of era. 1932 was the final year that America was the colonial occupier of Haiti, for example, where all of the zombies come from. So there's a real kind of sense of an evocation of mood. That's what Val Luton was really great at, was this kind of uh, sense of mood. He went on to do things like Isle of the Dead, which is, uh, again, with Boris Karloff, a kind of vampire narrative, but set in Greece, which is one of the origins of the vampire story. So there are lots of, it's a sequence, a cycle that you get in horror films all the time, which is that one is successful, the studio invests exactly the same amount of money and they produce 57 sequels, you know, to to that so that they can cash in on it. And then, of course, it finally collapses under the weight of its own absurdity and you can't get any further. So that's why Universal dominate in the 30s when it sort of collapses. You get RKO, they do really interesting work for about six or seven years and then that collapses and then you work somewhere else so it's a really it will see that again it, it, right now in the contemporary era there are lots and lots of production houses that, that work on this model this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something that's really striking already when we're talking about this development, this kind of genre, is that quite a lot of these ideas or these images that are being used are quite old. So we've got things like Frankenstein, we've got things like zombies, which have quite a long folklore tradition, but they're being used to reflect different and new fears. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And that's partly because I think any monster that is going to work has to be incredibly mobile and flexible as a metaphor. So if it just means one thing, then it's not particularly powerful. You, know, you can only say so much about a certain kind of monster. So mummies aren't great because they, I mean, I love mummy, mummy films, obviously, but you can only say certain things really about the mummy, you know, aristocratic kind of return, avenge narratives, those sorts of things. Whereas with a vampire, you can go all over the place with those sorts of uh, metaphors. You know, is it about blood? Is it about invasion, pollution? Is it about sexual anxiety? Is it about colonial anxiety? Is it about the modern world's fear of the ancient world? Is it about money? you know these sorts of things it's it's full of rich kind of metaphorical potential and that i think is why zombies have had such a good run particularly since 1968 and night of the living dead it's just been inexhaustible exploration of that kind of metaphor so a good monster is one that it means a lot means too much actually it always is forcing you to try and read what it means and we head now onto the 60s. But before we do, I just want to check, are there any films that we should talk about during the 50s? I think the only thing to say about the 50s, many things to say about the 50s, but I think that's a kind of classic monster movie cycle. So you begin to get in production history terms, you know, small studios, independent studios, very low budgets, but producing, cranking out lots and lots of material from that. So you could do a whole thing actually on the political anxieties of the 1950s, nuclear anxieties, communist invasion narratives in America, lots of things to say about the 50s there, but the kind of crunch point really is later in the in the 60s. Just to stay with that idea, is it too much of a reach to sort of tack specific anxieties onto horror films from a particular decade? If we were to say, for instance, that the 50s was a decade of horror films about invaders from elsewhere, fear of people coming in and pretending to be something they're not, does that ignore the diversity of films that were happening in search of a narrative? Or is that an accurate way of breaking this down? I think there are, you can look at dominant films and ask kind of why they're so successful. And in um, popular genre, you often get a very successful breakthrough film and then lots and lots of imitations. So it begins to kind of reinforce a certain kind of idea. So as you say, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a, is a kind of really interesting narrative from the 50s that might be about uh, communist invasion, might also be about fear of conformity and the, just the sheer dull boringness of being an American in the 1950s in suburbia. So you can kind of read things into that. But on the other hand, I think it's it's such a diverse genre. And it's worth saying that there are hundreds of films being produced all, all the time and they're in, in multiple kind of situations. So that it's never 
you can never do quite a sweeping narrative in a persuasive way because there are always these countercurrents in history, as we know, that mean that maybe we're looking at the wrong thing and that actually there's a film that no one's mentioned before or hasn't looked at that actually is saying something profoundly different or opposite to what we might expect. One film that everybody has heard of, I expect, and is is much discussed, is 1960s Psycho. What does this tell us about this moment in horror films and this moment in society, I suppose? Yeah, so 1960 is a key threshold moment, and that's because of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, but also because in the UK, Michael Powell did a film called Peeping Tom, which came out that year, which absolutely revolted people. It was about a, a kind of serial killer who films the death of prostitutes. He actually kills them with his camera. And it basically ended Michael Powell's film career in many ways. And then alongside that, Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock, who'd started in the 20s in London industry and then moved to America in the 20s and 30s, he really toys with the explicitness of horror film with Psycho in 1960. He made a decision to do it in black and white, and he used a television crew so it's harsh black and white contrast unusual because he had made technicolor films before this but it gives it a sense of documentary and a, a sort of slightly unnerving horrific element to it and it has famous elements to it not least the the shower scene which has been talked about ever since and also imitated many times just this rapid intercutting of different kind of shots so that you have a naked woman in the shower being stabbed to death but you don't necessarily see that you're adding into these kind of fast cuts your own imagination and then the explanation of the death why Norman Bates is is like he is without giving anything away is so extraordinary and so perverse and so explicit in its investigation of sexual trauma and sexual perversity that it's, quite, it's a real threshold moment, I think, because he's putting that into mainstream cinemas and many thousands of cinemas carried that kind of film and you just think this is a new level of explicitness, I think. This is what we need to understand, I think, about horror film and, and cinema is that it's always pushing at the edge of what is what what you're allowed to see and sometimes they overstep the mark and sometimes you get a moral panic about that and sometimes it's about breaking taboos and getting through to a new kind of level of representation so that's why the 60s are so important so socially we see a generational shift but also culturally we see a brand new style of cinema as well So this was a period in which horror films' transgressiveness was really actively pushing against the boundaries of a changing society. Yes, that's right, yeah. So the good example of this is 1968. So when there was a panic in the 1930s about horror films and, and other representations of explicit kind of violence or crime or murder... Hollywood voluntarily got together and produced what was called the Hayes Code, which was a code written by a Jesuit priest. And it kind of forbid any wages of of sin were not allowed, so you weren't allowed to, to, to be successful in crime. If you wanted a couple in bed, then at least one of them had to have one foot on the floor. You couldn't have any interracial narratives about romance or any kiss, for example, between a black actor and a white actor. And that stayed as the Hollywood code until 1968. 
And there are certain films at that point where the studio system is beginning to collapse. Society is in complete kind of uproar in America, civil rights movement, Vietnam War protests, student protests. It's a moment where the Hays Code just absolutely breaks down. And famously violent representations on the screen at that point, so Bonnie and Clyde was a key film for that year, But the horror film of that year was Rosemary's Baby, so 1968, mainstream studio, and you've got a sense of a new violence, a new explicitness, a new social diversity. You can represent race in a new kind of way. So politically, the 60s is this absolute eruption. Just to talk a little bit about Rosemary's Baby, because I think it's a really interesting film. What does it tell us about that moment in in terms of gender politics in terms of class it's saying a whole lot it seems to me <laughs> yeah it's, it's inexhaustible i think that film it's it's such an interesting striking film it's got this you know john cassavetes is is one of the main actors who is also a filmmaker himself but in an independent and very radical and experimental kind of tradition but here he is dropping in as a main actor playing a horrible conspiratorial husband it's yes as you say a film about patriarchy, the conspiracy against women, the sense of the restrictions on women in the 1960s. They're beginning to flex and and break in various kinds of ways. This is the second wave of feminism beginning to emerge around about 1968, the year of the film. And, And yet it's a narrative about how that figure, Mia Farrow, is this young kind of very heavily pregnant woman and then she gives birth to, well, what? At the end of the film, you know, it's it's as if she has been captured by a conspiracy, which is the conservative, restrictive figures in the culture itself. So it's producing horror out of social fear, social restriction, so that Mia Farrow looks like a liberated, young, independent, wealthy New York woman, but actually she's caught in this patriarchal web. You mentioned at the start that horror narratives were particularly read and enjoyed by women, perhaps enjoyed is the wrong word. Do we get a sense of this film being marketed at women or having a particularly strong reaction among female audiences? Yeah, so I think you're nudging into a kind of really much debated area, which is whether, you know, horror films actually appeal and are made to appeal to young men or or men much more than women. And I think that sort of sense of there is a an element in the representation of violence in some strands of horror cinema that are undoubtedly misogynistic and they really play on the the sense of sexual violence and really kind of revel and delight in it in very unsettling, unnerving ways. And people have been quite rude consistently about the slasher genre, for example. So, you know, punishment of women who are sexually independent always seems to happen in the first decade of that genre, certainly. So there is a kind of narrative here that that actually horror film is is sadistic and maybe hyper-masculine. But actually, it's always been the case that, that women have really enjoyed horror film and you can get a lot out of these kind of situations of peril or exploring agency in all kinds of ways. And what emerges, even in the slasher genre, is the so-called final girl, that is the figure who survives the slaughter that, that you're kind of taken through. And that sort of figure of the independent woman who's perhaps not quite fitting into gender or genre stereotypes has become a really powerful icon for women filmmakers to, to get really heavily involved in filmmaking as well. And you, there's even a group called The Final Girls who do commentary on these kinds of films and 
and clearly have a passion for them. So some films look like they are kind of nasty, misogynistic things, and some of them are, but actually there's lots of diversity in there. I always say, actually, it's interesting to discover that Halloween, which is one seen as one of the first slasher genres, was actually explicitly written to appeal to young women. It was written, co-written by Deborah Hill, who was a partner of um, John Carpenter, the director. And they looked at lots of kind of teen girl films and to try and appeal to an audience. And that's not something you'd necessarily expect from what is a profoundly anti-feminine figure in the monster of Michael Myers, who's out there to slaughter every woman that he, he can find. We talked a bit back in the 40s about zombies as a trope, as a figure in these films. And as you've alluded to, we're now reaching 1968's zombie film, the big zombie film that really transformed a lot of things. Can you talk about this this film and what, what this says? Yeah, so 1968 is the year that George Romero, completely outside the film community really in Hollywood, over in Pittsburgh, puts together uh, enough money with his friends to create Night of the Living Dead. And this is seen as a revolutionary film in all kinds of ways. It transforms the figure of the zombie from a sort of shuffling, vaguely inoffensive creature, usually a victim of a master, so a figure of a slave, which is where the zombie comes from, into a new thing, which is this ravenous horde that is after any human living flesh and wants to devour it. So Night of the Living Dead has extraordinary images of these hordes breaking in and, and rummaging through the innards of their victims, ropes of intestines being pulled out of bodies, really very extraordinary, terrifying images. And it's radical in so many ways. I mean, it's partly because the main character is played by a black actor. And George Romero always tried to say it was purely accidental, he was just the best actor in the group. And I don't think that can be right because there's so many political kind of elements tied to this. So there's an amazing scene where basically this black guy takes command of the last surviving humans. He's in control and he dominates the white male patriarch who's there, who's trying to take control and actually kind of, you know, basically slaps him down. And the politics of that in 1968 is really quite extraordinary with, you know, civil right riots going on, assassinations, the real kind of sense of struggle around race and politics in America at the time. And it was picked up immediately by not only black cinemas, say, in Harlem, and they showed it alongside slave B-movies as well. So they were, they were really clear about what this was about. But it was also picked up by the Museum of Modern Art and shown, you know, in very kind of high cultural context as well. So it was seen as a, a, as a really significant piece of art. And one of the most famous critics of a horror film, one of the critics who did the most to make it a respectable genre, Robin Wood, said that Night of the Living Dead had the force of art, a famous quote, that actually this was the most political film of 1968 and that it had this absolutely revolutionary potential, which he saw increasingly in horror film in the 70s. The ending of that film is among the bleakest ending of a horror film I think I've seen. Yeah, it is. And, you know, again, for people who haven't seen it, it's a fairly relentless, horrifying film. But it does end with, to give it away, the death of the central character, but in a way that's so 
bleak, as you say, so horrific. And actually, the the closing titles are over a series of black and white stills, and they are clearly echoing lynching photographs from the 1910s and 1920s. So when groups of, of whites in the South lynched a black man, they often took photographs as mementos and to kind of pass around and to sell of these kinds of images. And George Romero is deliberately picking up on that kind of iconography. So you can get just from that how explosively political that film was. Before we head on into the 70s, we should rewind a bit to 1964 to talk about a non-Western horror film that I think you think is important. Is that right? Yeah, this is Kwaidan, which was a Japanese film by Masaki Kobayashi. And it's it's interesting because it did really well in international film festivals and then was was considered to be, you know, a really amazing piece of work. It's where actually all of those terrifying black-haired Asian monsters come from. If you have watched horror film recently, you'll know from The Ring just how influential that figure, that vengeful, hungry ghost, as they call him in Japan, it is. So Kwaidan was this portmanteau film of lots of different stories. But it's worth just saying that right from the beginning, again, of horror cinema, that it's a global phenomenon and that you see this across the world. So yes, there's a lot going on in America, but there's also a lot in the UK. There's a whole sense of a German cinema, so expressionist German expressionist cinema is very particularly tinged with, with horror, I think. You might also think that 1932 is the year of Carl Dreyer's Vampire, which is a very famous European piece of work. And you can multiply these across the world. So there are very specific areas of the world that produce at certain moments really interesting clusters of horror. So Japan in the 80s and the 1990s particularly, and then right now South Korea. Why is South Korea producing so many devastatingly scary, frightening things from the Squid Game to the parasite. There's a certain kind of set of conditions in that political culture, and I guess being constantly under threat from your neighbour is one of those conditions, that, that produces the moment when horror kind of speaks to people in a really strong way. So it's, it's a genre that allows you to kind of channel a lot of energy in certain kind of ways. So yeah, South Korea right now, Japan, the really interesting stuff from Thailand. There's a whole Bollywood horror subgenre. You know, we should think about this as a kind of global story, definitely. It's so interesting that geopolitics, which you often think of this intangible, enormous thing, can be represented in, in, in a genre like this. Yeah, I think it's, this is, uh, I mean, I guess I would say this because I'm a cultural historian, but if you look at cultural objects, you know, they condense so much. So, you know, something like, I don't know, Godzilla is a, is a really stupid film of a man in a rubber suit jumping up and down on a, clearly a model of Tokyo for 15 minutes. But it's also hugely evocative of the post-war trauma of Japan and the sense of, you know, these are the people who've just had the atom bomb dropped on them. They're occupied by American forces. They're having to dismantle a whole political culture and westernise according to, you know, foreign forces. Of course you're going to have a giant lizard who's going to rise up and stamp all over you. This is kind of, it's a perfect expression of that. Susan Sontag, the critic, once said that 
these 1950s films have absolutely, they're devoid of ideas. They have absolutely nothing to say. Just think they have everything to say. They're saying so much about their political moment. And it might be in a kind of very broad brush way of doing things. But nevertheless, you know, they, they are such important kind of historical documents, I always think. One of the most famous horror films is the film we're talking about next, which is The Exorcist, which came out in 1973, which is 50 years ago this year. But I think it's had such a long cultural afterlife. Can you just talk a bit through that film and why you think that might be the case, I suppose? Yes. So if Rosemary's Baby in 1968 was a breakthrough and you were getting kind of horror story from a mainstream studio, then what really consolidated that was The Exorcist. So William Friedkin's film came out in 1973 and has had a major impact on the culture. So this is going into, again, loads and loads of cinemas. It's got real extreme representations of suffering and possession. So lots of stories about just how much Linda Blair had to put up with on set when she was playing this adolescent girl who'd been possessed by a demon crawling down the stairs, her head swivelling 360 degrees, this terrifying kind of eruption of absolute blasphemous stuff coming from her mouth. And it's it's a really kind of powerful representation, actually. If you think about 1973, you're also thinking about Roe versus Wade. You know, this is the moment when abortion becomes such a major political issue starting to become in the States. So Roe versus Wade gave women the constitutional right for abortion. There are a whole set of horror films about pregnancy and about anxieties around pregnancy and young girls' agency at that kind of time. You think about Carrie, Think about Black Christmas, which is a film set in a a women's dorm, and one of the central characters is deciding whether or not to have an abortion. And Exorcist is part of this as well, it's part of this moment. So, you know, Friedkin was adapting a book by quite a conservative Catholic thinker. It's all about the Catholic Church's confrontation with a demon. Do you still have the faith to be able to win out over the forces of evil? It's quite a conservative thing. But actually, at the beginning of The Exorcist, you get lots and lots of of context, really, about the situation of divorce. The family is, you know, is going through quite a nasty divorce. And it's almost as if this is a narrative of the acting out of the kind of horror or the the, the monstrosity, the trauma of that situation for the young daughter in the middle of that kind of fight. Really subtly done, actually, that sort of context. And it's kind of forgotten about when we think about the, you know, the projectile vomiting and all of that kind of crazy stuff that is of legend. But actually, it's a, again, it's a film that you can put into a historical context in really interesting ways. And, and was the 1970s the decade in which mass audiences were won over by this as a genre? I would say the 1970s was, yes, partly because of films like The Exorcist, but also because of careers like Stephen King's in in the novel. So Stephen King and Hollywood go together. His first novel that got taken up was Carrie. Everything he writes, and he's written hundreds of books by now, they're always number one, and every one of them instantly gets optioned. And they nearly always have truly terrible adaptations, but nevertheless, it's a kind of sense of of his cultural centrality. So, yeah, Stephen King in America, but also, say, James Herbert in the UK was very important too. Does it tell us anything about the 1970s that horror was brought into the mainstream? Does it tell us more about the genre than it does about the society, or does it say a bit about both? 
Yeah, I think the 1970s is a really crucial moment for horror, and that's partly because it's a really crucial moment in the post-war trajectory of the West, really. So you can kind of think there was a kind of broad consensus, is what historians say, from 1945 into the early 1970s. In the UK, you had the welfare state. No one was really particularly attacking the premises of the welfare state from its origins in the Second World War. But it starts to disintegrate in the 1970s, that consensus. And you're beginning to get lots and lots of social disorder of various kinds, huge strikes and the breakdown of labour relations, the oil crisis of 1973, the rise of identity politics, so feminism, gay liberation, black power, these sorts of things, a real feeling of disintegration. And quite often people suggest that horror might be registering that in different kinds of ways, both conservative ones, isn't this really terrifying, and also really aggressive ones. This is great. We're beginning to kind of um, birth a new kind of monster from this. So that's why I think horror is so central to that kind of moment. And another really important moment, I think, is the 1982, early 80s rise of what was known as the video nasty. Perhaps you can talk through what we mean by that phrase. Yeah, so video nasties, which is this great term that was actually coined by Mary Whitehouse, who was a moral majority, very conservative Christian kind of campaigner against anything that was faintly rude or blasphemous in culture. So she would kind of constantly harangue people for, you know, the BBC, for its progressive anti-Christian views and so on. She had enormous amounts of influence on the culture. Now, what happens in 1982 is, again, this is a story about technology So the video machine had been around for a bit, but it starts to be mass produced and you can begin to get one in your house for the first time for an affordable kind of cost. And you could, you know, be a VHS family or like me, humiliatingly, a Betamax family, which you you picked the wrong technology. And there was a strange loophole in the law, which meant that films that were put direct onto video weren't classified by the British Board of Film Censors. So they weren't given an 18 certificate or an X certificate as it was. They had no certificate. Anyone could watch them. Anyone could see them. And there was this very big moral panic around films with delightful titles like Cannibal Holocaust, which is not one I recommend, actually, and The Driller Killer, things like this. The Last House on the left, which famously has a very prolonged and difficult rape scene in it. And all of these were available. So what happened in 1982 was a moral panic, a conservative government, which was a little bit in the doldrums with recession, saw what we would now call a culture war issue, I think, with this. And they they kind of went to town on the idea that children could be watching these horrific films. So in the end, the director of public prosecutions produced a list of 72 films which became known as the Video Nasties. Now, I was exactly the right age to just think, those sound great. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to get hold of all of those because I was 15. And so, you know, instantly you want to get hold of these. They're nearly all rubbish, but that's not the point. They're illegal. It's great. It's fantastic. So it had an exactly a counter effect. I mean, I think I'm probably here talking to you because of that campaign which was that it made these, gave them such cultural cachet, such kudos. God, I've got to get hold of Cannibal Holocaust. That sounds great. And this was a moment when all of that 
material was given a different cultural kind of value, really, in some ways. So that's that's the whole debate. And then in 1984, the Video Recording Act came in and all of that went away. And to tell you kind of how much this is a cultural kind of moment of, of panic, there's nothing in there now that we wouldn't watch and we wouldn't stream. Some of them are streamed, you know, now. Some of them are horror classics, like uh, Dario Argento's Tenebrae was banned. And actually, you know, they, the, the British Film Institute has just shown that in a 4K restoration in its main theatre. You know, it's, this is the, the highest form of cultural uh, capital you can have as a film. So it was purely a cultural moment, not necessarily one about the nature of the films themselves. One of the things that strikes me looking back on horror films from the 80s is how much of them seem to be focused on ideas of bodily horror or kind of gore, I suppose. Does that tell us something about the 80s as a cultural moment? Yes, you're, you're quite right. So that is the era of what was called, you know, either body horror, so David Cronenberg films, not for the faint-hearted, or else Blatterpunk, which was associated with Clive Barker, the writer, who then went on quite quickly to direct Hellraiser, which is all about the sheer pleasure of having your body ripped apart by demons for the maximum ecstasy. And there does seem to be a real focus in there on basically the invasion of the body itself. So an anxiety about bodily, can we trust our the surfaces of ourselves, our skin, to protect us from the world beyond? Are we going to be attacked by viruses or by these various parasite forms? And maybe it tells you quite a lot. This is a good example, really, of the vampire film's resurgence in the 1980s. What What is the vampire after? Blood. What's the key anxiety in terms of sexual politics at the time? It's this new disease, which became known as AIDS. And that sense of blood transfer and anxieties around invasion from foreign viruses, as it was told in the 1980s, AIDS was coming from... Africa, it was coming from the Caribbean, it was coming from all these dangerous places in the world and infecting America or Europe. So those sorts of anxieties clearly focused directly in on the body. But we're also having a revolution about biology and our understanding of the microbiology of the body. And I think it's also piggybacking on that. So there's a sense in which, you know, a technological breakthrough or a medical breakthrough or an understanding of of the body, so gene editing and those sorts of things. That's what horror looks out for and picks up on those new kinds of anxieties historically. A key and more recent example of a historical anxiety of a moment, I suppose, of societal trauma is 9-11. Do we see the shift into the 2000s changing horror as a genre? Yeah, I mean, 9-11 is such a big geopolitical event, both for America, but also, you know, with consequences around the world, that you would be surprised if it didn't have some kind of effect on, on horror. And I guess many people have talked about the idea that actually it's quite quickly after that that you begin to get so-called torture porn horror films. So things like Saw or, or things like Hostel, which is very distinctly about American paranoia of tourists you know, having nasty things done to them in the former Soviet Union because they've wandered off the, the beaten tourist track. And they feel quite nasty, quite conservative, quite vicious, and they're also reflecting a sense in which they are in a situation where quite a lot of conservative elements of the American government are saying torture is okay, 
torture, torture is fine in this situation because we've got to stop the next terrorist attack any by any means necessary. So I think there is a, a sense in which you do see some traumatic reactions to that. But then also, you know, films of revenge or being avenged in this situation set in Middle East. This is the, you know, the new monsters are emerging from the Middle East in the imagination of the of America and the West to some extent. And you begin to see films that, that echo that kind of anxiety too. The last film on our list brings us pretty much right up to the present day, which is Get Out, which is a film from 2016. Some people might not have heard of this, may not have seen it. Can you just talk through why this is an important example? Yeah, so Get Out came out in 2016, and it's a film by Jordan Peele, who's an African-American filmmaker. Actually, he'd been a comic and had done comedy skits, actually, about horror films. And usually, because he's an African-American comedian, kind of reversing situations. And this sort of sense of, it's always the black guy who dies first in horror films and this became a trope that that many people kind of mocked not least because it tended to be worryingly true it's a bit like the red shirts in star trek you know they're always the ones who die first so jordan peele produced a rather brilliant take on what was basically a rewrite of a 1970s film called the stepford wives in the stepford wives a lovely nice white suburb is revealed to be a conspiracy of men who are replacing their wives with robots who are utterly obedient. In Get Out, what you get is a black guy from the city who's been taken to meet for the first time his white parents of his of his new girlfriend. And it turns out that there is a conspiracy of the elite white 1% who are basically stealing the bodies of black men in America. And it's, uh, it's an amazing piece of satirical exploration, which is also just a very good story, very narrative story. So if people are a little bit queasy about horror films, this is nothing explicit in this. Uh, it's, a, it's really ideas driven and it's very funny. It's very satirical in its approach. So I would really recommend it. And because Jordan Peele was an African-American figure, and this was the era of trying to really push for diversity in film production, beyond just rhetoric, into something that was actually practical, getting people of different colour in front of the camera, but also behind it, writers, producers, and directors. And it has fostered an an amazing flowering ever since. So we've got not just Jordan Peele, but people rewriting older horror material from an African-American perspective. Nia DaCosta's film of Candyman was a remake of this famous film from 1992, which is really interesting racially, but also really dodgy racially. And the rewrite really addresses the question of racial inequality in America uh, kind of head on. So I think that those are really, really important kind of films. And it's, I don't know if it's, you see this because it's the contemporary, it's our current, but but there seems to be an awful lot of political films at the moment that are that are coming out. You alluded there to some people potentially having a sense of queasiness about some of the things we've talked about. Do you think, despite the sort of increasing politicisation of recent years, it's that queasiness that sometimes stops people seeing these films as cultural or historical artefacts as valid as any other? I think undoubtedly it is. And horror film continues to to kind of push boundaries of taste and push boundaries of 
acceptability, I suppose. That's kind of what it's for. So if it wasn't upsetting somebody, it wouldn't be working. But that means that by definition, it's kind of a self-selecting audience to some extent. And when I'm, you know, in my role as a, as a teacher, I always say I'm, I'm not forcing you to watch these things because, you know, there are all kinds of, you know, experiences that people have that, that they bring to film that they just don't want to see. You know, I don't want to see any representation of violence towards X or Y or Z. And you kind of go, yeah, that's fair enough. So this is my particular kind of cultural obsession. And I think we should just be, you know, friendly and liberal about those and not necessarily kind of put them into a hierarchy. I mean, I think that's what's happened now is that culturally things have flattened out and that um, there isn't necessarily a hierarchy of taste always, that this is better than that, that really you must see an eight-hour Taiwanese film about basket weaving, which is done in one take. That's high art. Yeah, fine, but that would bore me stupid. What I want is, you know, a bit of kinetic kind of horror. That's also fine. And I, I would like to think we get to a position where culturally we can just accept <laughs> that there are different kind of ways of, of articulating ourselves and our historical situation. That was Roger Luckhurst, professor at Birkbeck University of London and the author of books including Gothic and Illustrated History, published by Thames and Hudson in 2021. And if you enjoyed our chat with Roger, he's appeared on the podcast twice before to talk about Dracula and sci-fi. Both episodes are well worth a listen, so just search for Roger Luckhurst in your podcast feeds to find those. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 